Welcome back to the program. 44 men have served as President of the United States. Each came to office with unique ambitions, desires, and skills, or lack thereof. Few sought the office as passionately and as desperately and came as far to achieve it as Richard Nixon. The real tragedy is that that passion, that desire, that ambition, coupled with the setbacks along the way, sowed the seeds of its own destruction. Perhaps if Nixon had been elected in 1960, both Vietnam and Richard Nixon might have evolved differently, and the world today just might be a different place. Such is the power of the character of the people that we place in that office. My guest, Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award-winning author Tim Weiner, ties all of the Nixon threads together in his new book, One Man Against the World. Tim Weiner is a former national security correspondent for the New York Times. He's the author of Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, which won the National Book Award, as well as the books Blank Check and Enemies, A History of the FBI. It is my pleasure to welcome Tim Weiner back to this program to talk about One Man Against the World, The Tragedy of Richard Nixon. Tim Weiner, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. It's great to have you here. I want to talk, first of all, you know, so much, we know so much about Nixon, so much has been written about him over the years. Talk a little bit about all of this new material, all of these tapes you've listened to, all of the, the Haldeman diaries that you've read, and the way it pulled together and put in it in a unique perspective all that we knew up to this point about Nixon. Well, you know, the Nixon Presidential Library is down in Orange County. And uh, a little more than two years ago, I was down there talking about Richard Nixon's relationship with J. Edgar Hoover. And afterwards, the archivists who run the Nixon Library came up to me smiling and saying, we have a pleasant surprise for you. <laughs> By the end of 2014, all the tapes, and there were hundreds that had never been released and never heard, and all the still top secret Haldeman diaries and a lot more will be out by the end of 2004 and it's going to change everything. Everyone is going to have to rewrite their history. It was a eureka moment for me because I thought, oh no, they're not going to rewrite the history. I am going to write the history. So I got a little bit ahead of the curve on the tapes, on the documents, and I really thought I knew my Richard Nixon. I have been fascinated with him since I was a kid. He was elected when I was 12. He fell when I was 18. But now I know him. And the key to understanding Nixon is something that, believe it or not, Martin Luther King wrote in 1958, when Nixon was still vice president, 10 years before Nixon was elected. And Dr. King wrote to a friend, and I quote, Nixon has a genius for convincing one that he is sincere. If Richard Nixon is not sincere, he is the most dangerous man in America. Now, Nixon had that genius, but he was also a very dangerous man. The other part of the core of Nixon, and you talk about this really early on in, in One Man Against the World, is this inherent disconnect between who Nixon was, what he did, who he was, and how he saw himself. And that disconnect, that fracturing, is, is so much a part of what drives all that bad behavior, it seems. Well, he saw himself as a great statesman, as a general who could command the globe, 
and not just the leader of the world of the free world, but in his words, the world leader. Problem. Richard Nixon never trusted anybody. Anybody. He didn't trust his Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the head of the CIA, all the generals and admirals and commanders and diplomats and spies who were trying to come up with a winning strategy in Vietnam. And he was alone with his thoughts. Only he knew what he was going to do. And he could not come up with a winning strategy in Vietnam. And you know how we Americans say that we are a government of laws and not a government of men? Under Nixon, we were a government of one man. That's the danger in a democracy. One of the other aspects of Nixon that is so much a part of this is not only did he not trust anyone else, but that he apparently, as, as comes out in these tapes, he had contempt for everyone else. It's the smartest man in the room syndrome. Mm-hmm. You see it often in Washington. But he also thought that he could outsmart the Chinese and the Russians into helping him settle the Vietnam War by going to the two biggest communist tyrannies on earth and sweet-talking them, charming them, cajoling them, convincing him to help him settle the war by getting the North Vietnamese to stand down. And at the same time, he says on tape, those Chinese are out to whip me. And as for the Russians, he calls them gangsters. And he says, they won't believe me. You see, they really think I'm a tricky bastard. And they're right. And these words come from a man who had been known for 20 years as Tricky Dick. Um, It is... He is at war with himself. He wants to come up with a winning strategy in Vietnam, but he's fighting on two fronts. In Vietnam, he's using B-52 bombers. At home, against his domestic political enemies, who were numerous and included you know, the entire Democratic Party, everybody who was against the war in Vietnam, and quite a few number of other groups, uh, racial and ethnic groups, he used a different weapon, not bombs, bugs, break-ins, black bag jobs, burglaries, and political blackmail. I finally understand after listening to this tape, these tapes that without Vietnam, there would have been no Watergate. Which really raises the question, and I know it's speculative, but but you can't help thinking about it in the context of this. What kind of president Nixon would have been, how Nixon would have been different had he been elected in 1960? That is one of the great counterfactual questions of all time. As you know, he lost that election by about 118,000 votes, some of which may have been stolen in Chicago by the Democratic machine there, and in Texas, where LBJ, JFK's running mate, held sway. We almost, and Nixon considered it, had a Bush v. Gore contest in 1960. But Nixon decided against it because it would rip the country apart. 
had Richard Nixon been elected in 1960, he would not have had to engineer the greatest comeback since Lazarus, claw his way back into power, and then fight with every ounce of his strength to win a landslide in 1972. And this is where the dirty tricks and the dirty money and the gutter politics really come out. Earlier than that, if you look at Nixon's career in California, even before he became vice president, in terms of the way he he ran elections, the way he ran, you do get a sense of what we now know to be Nixon. It's not that these things didn't exist before. Well, that's where he earned the nickname Tricky Dick, didn't he? Right, right. Running first uh, for Congress uh, in Orange County uh, against Jerry Voorhees and uh, smearing him as a socialist. And then running for uh, Senate against Helen DeHagan Douglas and smearing her as a communist. And winning, and then two years later, before his 40th birthday, he's the vice president of the United States under General Dwight D. Eisenhower. It is one of the most remarkable stories in American political history. For a man who was came from absolute poverty in Orange County, his father, who had a sixth grade education, was apparently the only man who couldn't raise oranges in Orange County. Um, and he grew up poor. He was one of five brothers, each named after British kings. And like a king, like a Shakespearean king, he fell by his own hand. Talk a little bit about the political genius of Richard Nixon, the genius that got him to be vice president, as you say, before his 40th birthday, and really the way in which that failed him in those later years. Nixon had a grand vision. He didn't have a secret plan to end the Vietnam War before he was elected. That's a, that, that's a, a myth. Right. The plan that he had was that he was going to play Russia and China against each other and then play both of them against North Vietnam and settle it all in one grand bargain. Nixon always used football metaphors. He said, go for the big play. Well, that was his big play. And... It didn't work. Um, The vision that you could end the Cold War, okay, by going to China, by going to Russia, by settling the war in Vietnam, that was genius. The way in which he executed this strategy and the way in which Henry Kissinger, as his tactician, executed this strategy was a disaster. The war could have been over before Nixon's first inauguration had he not scuttled the peace deal because he promised the South Vietnamese a better deal when he was president. So the war went on for another seven years, and we lost more than 25,000 American lives because of Richard Nixon's political ambitions. Now, that is evil genius. One of the things that, this re- that you really bring out in One Man Against the World and that these tapes bring out and, and that you've been talking about here is this direct connection between Vietnam, Watergate, and the downfall of Nixon. The Vietnam is very much a part of it. Talk about that. Wanted to end the war. Who wouldn't? When he came to office, 
We had more than half a million combat troops in Vietnam, and we were losing three, four, five hundred soldiers a week. His strategy was to slowly withdraw American troops while, and this is the politest quote I can come up with on the tapes, bombing the bejesus out of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Richard Nixon dropped more bombs on Cambodia, 2.7 million tons, than all the bombs dropped by all the Allies in World War II. Nixon invaded Cambodia in search of something that didn't exist, the so-called Bamboo Pentagon, which was supposed to be the command and control headquarters of the enemy. So we invaded Cambodia with American troops. The campuses explode. The National Guard shoots four kids at, at Camp State. And the country's torn apart. Nixon's campaign slogan in 1968 was bring us together. He achieved the opposite. It's interesting that he didn't listen also to anyone's advice about this. I think you, you have even the point where Bill Rogers, his Secretary of State, tells him that if he invades Cambodia, this is going to be what happens. Nixon, well, both Secretary of State Rogers and Secretary of Defense Laird opposed the invasion of Cambodia and said, uh, don't do this, Okay. It's going to be a disaster, a military disaster, and a political disaster. So Nixon goes on television Thursday, April 30th, 1970, to announce the invasion of Cambodia. And in a classic Nixon statement, he says, quote, this is not an invasion of Cambodia, unquote. And Secretary of State Rogers is in his hideaway office at the State Department, and he watches a speech in which Nixon says, if we don't do this, if when the chips are down, I'm quoting directly from Nixon's speech, the world's most powerful nation, the United States of America, acts like a pitiful, helpless giant. The forces of totalitarianism and anarchy will threaten free nations and free institutions throughout the world. Rogers listens to this speech. He clicks off the TV and he says, the kids are going to wretch. The campuses exploded, and four days later came Kent State. Talk a little bit about how Nixon started to weather all of this, and, and the drinking and, and the withdrawal, really, that, that happened the more the pressure mounted, uh, all from a guy who liked to think of himself as the master of crises. Nixon suffered from a demonic case of insomnia. He treated it with alcohol bad idea. He went days and days and days on end with an hour of sleep or two hours of sleep or none. And on these new tapes, you can listen to Richard Nixon at the brink of madness. I mean, really on the edge of sanity. There's a particular tape from May of 1973. It's after midnight. He's fired his top aides, uh, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. General Al Haig is his new chief of staff. He calls up Haig after midnight. He's exhausted. He sounds drunk. He's slurring his words. And he's saying, 
shouldn't we just give up? I mean, shouldn't I just pack it in? I can't fight this battle anymore. I can't fight the damn battle. But he did. He had to. And he had to fight it alone. And he did for 15 more months. One of the things you point out as one of the other reasons that he fought this battle alone is is really where things stood at the time, which we tend to forget about, in terms of the line of succession if Nixon had resigned or been thrown out earlier. Well, we had kind of a constitutional crisis going on <laughs> in the fall of 1973, which was that the Vice President of the United States, Spiro T. Agnew, had just pleaded no contest to a charge of failing to pay taxes on bribes that he had been taking as Vice President. So we have no Vice President. The Speaker of the House is an alcoholic. The next in line of succession is the President Pro Tempore of the Senate, James Eastland of Mississippi, a doddering Mississippi plantation racist. And not fit to serve. And the next in line is Henry Kissinger, who was born in Germany and constitutionally inevitable. Uh, I'm sorry, constitutionally ineligible to serve as president. So he does have to fight the damn battle alone. Uh, And then just a few days after Agnew resigns, the attorney general turns to his newly appointed deputy and says, we've got a problem worse than Agnew. And the deputy says, that's not possible. And the Attorney General Elliot Richardson says, yes, it is. The president wants to fire the special prosecutor of Watergate, Archibald Cox. Nixon had signed a deal saying he could not fire the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. Only Richardson, the Attorney General, could. Nixon orders... Richardson to fire Cox, he won't do it. He resigns. He orders the next in line, the Deputy Attorney General, to do it. He won't do it. He resigns. The next in line is the Solicitor General, a name that may ring a bell, Robert Bork. He fires Cox. And then the President is constantly getting loaded every night during this month of October. And this is where you have this nuclear crisis going on with the Soviet Union where the Arabs and Israelis have gone to war, the Soviets are shipping nuclear warheads into the Mediterranean. And Nixon is upstairs in the family quarters in the White House, stone-cold drunk, knocked out. And Henry Kissinger and four other unelected officials raise the global nuclear alert, send nuclear-loaded B-52 bombers aloft and alert the 82nd Airborne. Now, something could have gone terribly wrong through miscalculation at that time, and as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wrote in his diary that night, the president was, quote, non-functional. We were a ship dead in the water. If a real crisis had happened, it could have been a cataclysm. We were staring down the barrel of World War III, and the president was not in his right mind. From that point, in 1973, were there points beyond that when Nixon really was in charge or lucid, or was it really pretty much all downhill from that point? He knew by that point that he was doomed. 
um, the tapes reflect that he knew he was doomed uh, by the summer of 1973. Um, the night of that nuclear crisis is when the House uh, convenes to consider the first articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. And Nixon bravely says, you know, we're going to keep on fighting. We're going to fight this to the death. And then he resigns because he knows he will be impeached and he would rather die than be impeached. And he almost did die two months later. Talk about the decision not to burn, not to destroy the tapes. Uh, interesting question, because he actually says on the tapes, we have to destroy the tapes. Right. <laughs> and then after the existence of the tapes is revealed at the Watergate hearings, he's in the Bethesda Naval Hospital with viral pneumonia, and he writes on a notepad by his bedside, should have destroyed the tapes. Now, he could have, he could have done it. He and he alone could have done it and said, okay, I'm the president, this is my material, and I'm going to burn it, and if you want to impeach me for it, come on. But he didn't. And then all his aides, all his lawyers are gathering around the White House saying, so are we going to have a bonfire on the White House lawn or what? And someone says, jokingly, sure. Who's going to strike the match? King Timahoe? That was the president's uh, not very affectionate Irish setter. Um... No one else could strike the match. That would have been an obstruction of justice because uh, some of the tapes were under subpoena already. Nixon could have done it. He might have gotten away with it, uh, and he might have been impeached. How much of a similarity is there? Because there are such seminal moments. The, the similarity between the decision that Nixon makes not to destroy the tapes in some way and the decision not to contest the 1960 election. Somehow those decisions seem so seminal, and in some ways, even though they're not tied together, seem connected. I don't think that Nixon had the courage to be absolutely blunt to come to that kind of confrontation. Uh, he did not enjoy confrontation, he did not, he swore five times he was going to fire J. Edgar Hoover. He never did it because he never summoned the spine to do it. And he lacked a certain moral courage. This was a man, unlike many of his predecessors as president, who had never seen military combat. He spent World War II playing poker on a very pleasant island in the South Pacific and winning <laughs> eight grand, which was a lot of money in the 40s. Um, but in the end, I think he did the noble thing by resigning and not forcing uh, an impeachment procedure which would have torn the country apart, unlike anything you know, since oh, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King in 1968. Tim Weiner, the book is One Man Against the World, The Tragedy of Richard Nixon. It's just out from Henry Holt. Tim, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, the story has an, a happy ending. Do you remember the day that Nixon's helicopter flew off into the fog on an August morning? Indeed. 1974. There were three men standing on one of the balconies of the White House. 
One was the Secretary of Defense, Jim Schlesinger. One was a young National Security Council aide named David Ransom, who later became a very distinguished American ambassador, and third was the White House cook. Schlesinger takes his pipe out of his mouth, bangs it on the railing to empty the bowl, and says, well, it's an interesting constitutional question, but I think I'm still the Secretary of Defense, so I'm going back to my office. And he turns to the cook and says, what are you going to do? And the cook says, I'm going to go prepare lunch for the president. And young David Ransom says, of course, the king is dead. Long live the king. This wasn't a matter of abstruse arguments over constitutional privileges. Our our state was going to carry on, and the president, Gerald Ford, was going to want lunch in about an hour and a half, so the cook went off and prepared it. And Ransom recollected, I've always thought that was something very important about our country. We may stumble, but we don't fall. Tim Weiner, I thank you so much. Yeah, you enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 